Second Peter chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. Let us hear God's holy word. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Let's pray. O Lord God, we can read the Bible, but it means absolutely nothing to us, and we will not see its truths unless we ask you, Holy Spirit, to grant us inspiration, understanding, spiritual mind to know and to understand the Word of God. And we pray, therefore, that you would impart your Word to us. Jesus, come Jesus, the ever-living Christ, the glorious Savior of all humanity, come and preach the word to us this morning. We ask, Lord, that you would impart that word to us today, that we might leave convicted, strengthened, encouraged, undergirded, firm, firmly built on the foundation of the word of God. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, preparations, we all make them, don't we? I mean, we have upcoming deadlines, and so we prepare for those deadlines. We prepare for Sunday morning. My wife wonderfully helps me. Uh, I haven't asked her to, but each Sunday morning or Saturday evening, she'll put out uh, an appropriate shirt, um, a tie of her own choosing. Sometimes I change the tie, but generally I keep the same tie she puts out. Um She'll put out my shoes. She'll even put out socks for me. It, it's a it's a it's a sweet thing that she does. It's it's a very kind thing that she does. Not something that I require of her at all. And sometimes I get after her and say, "You don't need to do so much for me." And she says, "But I love to do it." Well, she also prepares for us for lunch and uh, each each or supper each evening. Uh, she'll tell us with lunches. Well, you're on your own. Uh, but but typically with supper, she'll say, uh, I've prepared supper, and of course about 4 o'clock, maybe 3, 3.30, I'm, I'm itching for supper, I'm ready, and uh, she'll, she'll hold me at bay and tell me, you've got time, wait, wait, mister, and uh, so I have to wait for supper, and usually it's around 4.30, 5 o'clock, 5.30, uh, or if it goes long, 6 o'clock, but, but one way or the other, I, I know that Christine is preparing ahead of time. Uh, and anticipating our supper needs and has pulled things out and things are on the counter, ready to go. And sometimes, every once in a while, she'll, she'll miss her preparation. She'll have to pull out that chicken, uh, put it in the microwave and, and defrost it as fast as she possibly can or put it in a bowl against all scientific evidence that, that it's harmful for you. Put it in the bowl, in the sink, and let it, uh, let it, let it um, decompose, rather, uh, defrost. Um, quickly for our supper hour. But preparation is something we're all quite familiar with, is it not? Uh, I've prepared to be in the pulpit this morning. You, you've prepared to be here. Preparation is something we all take seriously, especially about things that we consider to be the most important. We are well prepared, are we not? If we have a meeting with a bank, we are well prepared. We've got all the paperwork lined up. Uh, if, if we have a meeting with a friend or a sister or brother in the Lord, we might even think about the conversation we're going to have ahead of time. Uh, 
we're prepared. Preparation is important, and, and preparation in life is important. And there's, there's even someone who writes uh, from a Christian perspective about preparing and saving food and meals against the day, uh, against evil days. He says, seeing the evil days and wisely stocking up on emergency provisions doesn't make you any less spirit-filled. I would agree with that. That's a good statement. And there are preppers, are there not? There are people who are hoarding and, and preparing for days that, frankly, I used to scoff at and think were absolutely ridiculous. I no longer do. It happened about three years ago when I went to the grocery store and was told to walk in single file only in the directions of the arrows that were in front of me. And to put on a mask, almost choking myself to death. And being stopped at the door and being told I could not go in. Seeing grocery stores closed and CVSs and, 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 and drugstores closed, no longer available for what I needed. And seeing gas stations out of gas. I've seen that twice in my life. Many, many years ago under a, a previous administration where gas lines were a common thing. And the price of gas was exceedingly high. And then all of a sudden we saw grocery stores closed and the things that we needed empty on the shelves or shelves that were empty. <clears throat> I think it's wise to prepare for an evil day. I think it's wise to prepare. Uh, uh, preparation is a good thing. Many people speak about preparation. Confucius himself has said success depends upon previous preparation. Without such preparation, there is sure to be failure. I think we're all convinced of that. If we have a test on Thursday at, at, at school, uh, or, or there's, there's training that we're taking, a web-based web, web training for our job, uh, we have to prepare for that. My son is soon going to partake in, a, in, in an aptitude test uh, for the Electrical Brotherhood, uh, Brotherhood of Electrical Workers. And uh, I said, I don't care if it's an aptitude test or not, prepare. Prepare for it. Go and look for some preparatory questions. Be ready. Make yourself ready. Prepare. Don't be unprepared. Steve Nash, who is a basketball coach and former player, says you have to really rely on preparation. You, you've, he, this is what he says. You got to really, uh, I know it's, it's improper grammar, but, but, but this is a quote. You got to be really passionate and try to prepare more than anyone else, and put yourself in a position to succeed. And when the moment comes, you got, there he goes again, to enjoy, relax, breathe, and rely on your preparation so that you can perform and not be anxious or filled with doubt. Benjamin Franklin said, by failing to prepare, you are preparing to fail. He's correct. Peter is writing to a church, to a people who need to prepare. And, and maybe some of us are not at all prepared for the return of Jesus Christ. Maybe some of us have never really prepared at all for the end of our lives. Or we've made financial preparation, but we have never prepared for the spiritual condition of our soul. Or, frankly, for our spirit. When the silver cord is snapped and our soul ascends to God and our body goes to the grave. But Peter is writing to professing Christian people who need to make preparation too. We might think, I'm all set, I'm good with God. Maybe we've said that. Uh, and we can say that to a degree. I, I, I'm not one for flippant statements like that. But 
I'd rather say I've been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. I'd rather use biblical language. But Peter is writing to a people who have been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, who are anticipating and looking for the return of the Lord. And yet, he tells them and he warns them and he he has taken enough time out of his schedule and under the inspiration and prompting of the Holy Spirit of God, being compelled by God to speak these words, he is warning them to be prepared. He wants them to be prepared. He wants them to think about those preparations now and to live in such a way that they are prepared as they await the day of God. Since all these things, he said in verse 11, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? In other words, he says, scriptural truth, biblical truth should have an impact on the way that we live. The word of God should have an impact upon how we prepare for the Lord and his return. And so this epistle is epist- it's an epistle of preparatory living. Before prepping was a thing. Before there was an industry born of putting 50-gallon jugs of, of grain, dry grain, that frankly, I don't know how I would prepare such a thing. The truth is that I don't know where to begin with 50 pounds of beans. But preparation and prepping is a thing for a believer. We know where to begin. We begin with the word of God. I just want to remind you of the the, the argument of where Peter has been bringing us. He told them... You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand. This is what he says in this passage, in verse 17. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand. Knowing what? Knowing what? Well, he has said a lot. I think he's referring to the entirety of the epistle, where he has said, even beginning in chapter 1, verse 1, he's writing to men and women justified by God through faith in Jesus Christ who are dispersed throughout the world, especially and particularly in southwestern Turkey. He's writing to them, Christ is their Savior, Jesus has granted their faith, and it's through him that they've been made righteous. They've come to a true and living understanding of God through Jesus Christ the Lord. And they have an approaching knowledge of God. They have a knowledge of God that leads to salvation. That's a wonderful thing. And Peter even uses language and says it's a, it's a like faith with ours. He's saying if you know Jesus Christ, you're on the same plane, the same level as the apostles were. I never understand this 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 passion for men and women declaring themselves to be a new apostle. It's it's nonsensical. Amen. God has to call a person to be an apostle. Amen. We do not simply come to that by ourselves. God alone can declare that. And he is he is appointed He has called the apostles of the New Testament. All of them were in close approximation with Jesus, were taught specifically by Jesus. Even Peter, one untimely born, as he uses that language of himself, was arrested on that road by by the living God, the Lord Jesus Christ, who spoke to him in resplendent glory. And he says, Paul, why, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? 
as he persecutes the people of God. And then Paul, later on, whose name has been changed by Christ, says to him, or essentially takes him for a period of time out into the Arabian desert where he learns the things of God, who hears direct revelation from God concerning the gospel, who understands the truth, goes in preparation to the apostles and is affirmed by them, even by Peter. In this passage, chapter 3, as being an, an, an untimely born apostle of Jesus Christ, but men taught by the Lord. Well, he says to them repeatedly in verses 1 through 3 that they've come to an understanding of the knowledge of God. <clears throat> they've come into a rational, spiritual understanding that leads to salvation through Christ. This isn't all, this is, this is not all that God has granted to us. His divine power has also been granted to us, leading us to, uh, as persons of faith, together with this faith, into a, a commitment to godly living. <clears throat> God grants all things that pertain to life and godliness. We don't simply know something without effect. In other words, you don't come to simply a, 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 an intellectual affirmation that, yes, I believe certain facts about Jesus, that he was this historical person, that he lived and walked upon the earth, that he died, that he rose again, he ascended into heaven. You can't just affirm those things intellectually without also the connection of the heart and of the life with those same truths. If we know God, we know his moral excellence. His divine power grants that also to the believer. True knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ is always connected to a life powerfully growing through his divine power, little by little, little by little, day by day, but most certainly progressing in that knowledge, enabling us to more and more be transformed into the image of our Savior. We come in faith to Christ, and we grow up into that faith in him. Well, Peter is making that argument in chapter 1, but then he also warns in chapter 2 that there are many who will come who are enemies of the faith. Now, there are enemies within ourselves, lethargy and laziness and lack of diligence, ineffectiveness, doubt. And there are enemies outside of ourselves, in particular individuals who are learned people, who are false teachers. They, they, have, they have cleverly devised myths that sound really good with their presentation, who deny the coming of the Lord, who claim new prophecies, interpreted only by these unprincipled false prophets and teachers blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant. They have loud boasts of folly. They entice themselves and others by sensual passions of the flesh. They fill mankind up with, the, with, with the, the notion that, well, this is all there is. That's all you are as a physical being. You don't have anything beyond that physical body. One day your body will die, and that's the end of you. But you know, and I know, there's more to us than merely the physical, is there not? You, are, you have a body, and you have a true soul. And your soul cannot die. You're an eternal being. Your soul lives, and when your body dies, your soul will ascend to God. And there are many who deny that fact. They, they speak boastfully of folly, entice themselves 
with passionate pursuits of things of the flesh, and they, they're filled with gluttony and greed and lust of all kinds. And they even deny that the Lord will come again. They say, look, things have been going on. The sun has been rising and setting since the beginning of time, and the Lord has not come. Jesus walked on the earth and around 0 AD, 0 to 30 or beyond or thereabouts, and it's been 2,000 years. He hasn't returned yet. And yet Peter warned us, and he said, look, there are some who will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. But they forget, and it escapes their notice, that the word of God, that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded by water. By his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. And with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. So he warns us. Well, there's a last one word of exhortation in verses 14 through 16. Since therefore, beloved, you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. These are the last notes of the last letter of the Apostle Peter, later on in his life, before probably within two to three years, he dies. And he dies in Rome under Nero's persecutions. Uh, traditionally, we understand that he died hung upside down because he had complained that he was unworthy to die in the same way in which the Savior died. And so he demanded that he be hung upside down and crucified, ups, crucified upside down. And that is what happened to him. So we are told. And so if, if that man is imparting a last word to us, should we not listen? So we come to two things in the passage this morning that are preached to us from Peter and these two verses. And the first of which is simply guard, and the second is grow. But first, guard. They are being forewarned, and you and I are being forewarned that we are to make every effort in the diligence called for in verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, in other words, since you believe that Jesus is coming again, since you believe that the heavens and, and the, the cosmos will melt, and all things will be remade by the will and power of God, and that Jesus will come with shout of an acclamation and the voice of an archangel, and all, all, all mankind and all of God's creation will see him and bow to him because he is the eternal God. Because you believe those things, you should live and prepare for those things. That's the argument of these, passage, this, these two verses. You believe these things, prepare for them. And the way you prepare for them is you guard carefully over the things that you believe and the course of your life. Guard carefully over what you take in, how you use your time, how you spend your money, what becomes most important to you, how you order your priorities, how you treat your loved ones and people around you, whether or not you make a careful study of what it means to live as a Christian in a wicked world. Peter is careful to clarify that we are to be on our guard. In, in 
within the immediate context of wicked people, lawless people, people who do what they want without any reference to the Creator or to His will. People that we have no right to judge ultimately or condemn to hell. People that we are not God over, but people whose way of life we are not to follow. Paul's argument in Romans is, do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind in Christ Jesus. It seems to me transforming requires a great deal of work, service, and commitment to Christ. It means a daily dying unto our flesh and ourselves. But isn't he worth it? Is this not preparation for you, for me, to see him face to face? It seems to me that conforming to this world is something that is so easy. Just don't do anything. Just don't do anything. It will happen. Preparation, a lack of preparation is a preparation to fail. (laughs) And that's what it is in the Christian life. Well, he says, he warns us, don't be carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. He has referenced that steadfastness earlier in verse 16. He says there are some things that there's some individuals that that who are untaught and unstable and they distort the word of God. Well, the truth of the matter is that he's describing the wicked and their in their lack of stability. You think about stability as a being, as as a human being. We think, well, if I have good health, I'm stable. If I have enough money to face the future, I'm stable. If I'm prepared for my death, I'm stable. Well, you're unstable if you're not founded upon something beyond your own understanding. You see, because our minds are not infinite. We do not know all things. You do not know what's after death, do you? You and I must trust the only one who can tell us what is death, what is after death, what remains, because truthfully... Even people who write stories about their moment of death when they saw a great light, it's all made up. I'm sorry. It's all made up. If you're going to base your life off a little boy, maybe 11 years old, 10, 11 years old, coached by his father about what he thought that he saw and making theological assumptions about about all of that, uh, you're going to be disappointed. But rather, shouldn't we trust the words of our Creator? And our God, who pronounced judgment against Adam in the Garden of Eden and who said, surely if you partake of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. God understands death. Christ knows death. Christ conquered death, has removed the sting of death, says that we need not fear death, that when we die, we will be with him. His word is far more sure. And so be on your guard against unprincipled men and women, boys and girls, people who have an agenda in this world, people who, <clears throat> men and women who have a, desi- have, have a desire to pull you in with themselves. And it's a danger for Christians, <clears throat> professing sincere Christians to find ourselves in, uh, of instability. And, and if we're honest, haven't some of us, haven't 
Haven't we experienced something of that instability during seasons in time in which we neglected the Lord? It's possible for a believer, surely, it's a danger for Christians, not that the genuine Christian can be lost. No, a Christian cannot be lost. Read John chapter 17. Christ speaks of all those who have been given to him, uh, of, of which he will not lose one. We cannot be lost, ultimately and eternally, yet a sincere believer for may, for a period of time, fall into sin or to a large degree fall and fail in doing what is pleasing to the Lord and pursue and consume the world while neglecting the truth in the pursuit of holiness. We cannot fall from our position of being saved by the grace of God through Christ, whose sins have been forgiven and have been washed with the blood of Christ, but we can lose our stability. And that's why Peter is writing to them. Haven't you experienced days of instability? Some, Some of us have. When we have left off the Lord, when we have forgotten God, when we have forgotten of his love, and we have failed in our own thinking about God and to give ourselves to the Lord as we ought, we found ourselves, well, we've begun neglecting prayer, and we began to neglect the word of God, and next thing you know, we we began to see certain sinful patterns return in our lives, and patterns of sin, of deceit, or lust, or of a manner of evil or anger and unkindness and meanness and wickedness that seemed to all of a sudden just come out of every pore. And the truth is that, well, it, it all began when we forgot the Lord and we forgot prayer and Bible reading and the disciplines of the Christian life. And so Peter is writing and he says, be wary, be on guard. Be suspicious of other thoughts about the world and about eternal life that aren't reflected in the word of God. Be concerned and thoughtful about and prepared for. In preparing for the return of Jesus Christ, have nothing to do with those unprincipled men and their ideas. So guard. Guard yourself in preparation for the return of Jesus. Two, grow. How how best do we guard our own soul? What's the best way that we can guard our souls for the return of Christ so that we're not carried away by unprincipled persons who distort the word of God? Well, grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Grow in grace, Peter says. Well, what does that mean? Well, it just simply means to grow in our understanding of it, to how can you and I, <clears throat> how can we learn a new skill? Let's just say, let's just say that in some way we serve in a white collar position. And one day we go to the mechanic and our car is broken. <clears throat> and a mechanic tells us that we are, are, our, our brake calipers uh, are, are, are stripped down and in fact, uh, um, uh, uh, the, the, the discs and, and, and the calipers themselves all need to be replaced thoroughly. And we think, geez, I don't have the $1,500. What am I going to do? And then we look up on YouTube and we realize, sheesh, there's 15,000, well, 15 million videos on how to replace the brakes on my particular vehicle. We realize, well, all I really need are about 10 different tools 
And I think that I can do this. I might be mechanically inclined physically to do this or that. And so what do we do? Well, we watch those videos and we prepare and we think about and we learn the skill. Well, growing in grace is very much like that. Do you want to know about grace? Do you want to know about the grace of God? Do you want to increase in the grace of that of, of our God? Well, what do we do? Well, we should watch everything that we possibly can that will teach us about the grace of God. YouTube's a great place to begin, but be careful. Be careful. There's a lot of garbage out there. More garbage than there is good. But shouldn't we begin with the word of God? Shouldn't we read? <clears throat> shouldn't we make preparations for uh, and, and, and deeply delve into the concept of grace? I, I'm convinced that as a believer that oftentimes I'm negligent in my daily duties before God because I don't marvel at grace like I should. Grace should call forth a daily marveling and just an explosion of thankfulness such that my life is daily marked by grace. In our understanding of what it means that Christ died for me when I was known as a sinner, when I was opposed to him, when I was a rebel against grace, when I didn't want to have anything to do with him, when I wanted to live my own way, Christ died for me. It's extraordinary. He gave himself for me. That no amount of sin is so great that I cannot be forgiven and redeemed. No amount of human effort can justify me before God, and it cannot. The understanding that all progress in the Christian life is because of him. Because he is at work in my soul and in my life. Prompting and prodding and pressing and encouraging and moving and influencing me to do that which is pleasing to him. And I only stand because he holds me up. That grace alone has justified me. That no matter what I've done, I have an advocate with the Father. I can approach him empty-handed because there's nothing that I can bring in my hands that can in any way satisfy his law's demands. Grace is the idea that grace alone has justified me. No matter what I've done, I have an advocate with the Father that I confess my sins. If I confess my sins, he is faithful and just to forgive me of my sin and cleanse me of my iniquity. Grace is the understanding that Christ came into this world many, many, many years ago, 2,000 years ago, and he did so for my sake, for the sake of my soul. And when he prayed in John chapter 17 that of those not yet in the fold, I was in his mind, and so were you. Grace is the idea that even though God had every right to justly condemn all humanity and save none and wipe the face of the earth like he did during Noah's time. He didn't do that. Amen. He saved Noah and his family. And more than that, <clears throat> he sent forth his son, the matchless, mighty, beautiful, precious, infinitely glorious in all his being, Son of God, so that he might die for sinners. We did not deserve that. That is grace. Grace is extraordinary. Grace is motivation. And deeply instilling ourselves in that grace 
is preparation for the return of our Savior. Grow in the grace of the Lord. We think some of us that grace is hesitant, that God is hesitant to forgive us our sins. No, he's not. He's faithful and just. He's eager to forgive sin. Many of us are experts in self-assessment of sins, ours or others, but not so expert in grace. We can cry out with Paul, O wretched man that I am, and we neglect the very next verse. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What an extraordinary statement. Oh, wretched man that I am. You and I, we excel in feeling that, some of us. Oh, we feel wretched. Read the next verse. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You may condemn yourself, and of course we must repent of our sins and approach the Lord and pray for grace, but you can't condemn yourself to eternal damnation either because Christ has died for you. And when God sees you, he sees his beloved son. You need to read one verse with the other. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation, dear brother or sister. No one will condemn you in the last day if your faith is in Christ Jesus. No one can condemn you on this earth. No false teachers. Be careful that you're not caught up with them. Don't buy into the lie. There is life with Christ. And if you're saved by grace through faith, no one can change that standing. If one day we stand before him in the great white throne judgment, shouldn't we press on to know him? Shouldn't we press on to come to an understanding of him, to grow in his grace and to know him? This is the constant plaintive plaintive cry of scripture Ephesians 4:15 rather speaking the truth in love we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ Romans 12:2 don't be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God that is good and acceptable and perfect or Colossians 1:9 and so from the day we heard we have not ceased to pray for you asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now, he's not just talking about factual information about Jesus Christ or a doctrinal understanding alone to know about him or to know him. Both are in view. Factual knowledge that also is relatable. Knowledge that leads to relationship. Knowledge that leads to preparation. Beginning with his incarnation, his life, his ministry, speaking, healing, mercy, tenderness, humility, sinlessness, suffering, temptation, death, resurrection, ascension, his eternal glory laid aside, the covering of humility, subjecting himself to the limitations of a human body, subject to the effects of the fall. Consider his place at the right hand of God. Think about Jesus and grow in the knowledge of him. We know far too much about ourselves, I think. What I mean by that is we study ourselves. We take pictures and we want everyone else to see us in the ways in which we want to represent ourselves. We tell everybody about all the best things in ourselves, but we don't talk about all the the wretched parts. But we do know 
We know who we are. We know all the wickedness, all the darkness, all the all that's filthy that we engage in. We know all that's wretched. We know all that all the the the, the intricacies of what makes us who we are. And yet God knows it all. And he has covered us all with the blood of Christ. Consider the Lord Jesus. How can a Christian grow? We need to read the Bible, be firmly established in the word of God, speak and fellowship together over the Savior. Certainly attend church where Christ speaks with his people through faithful ministers called and prepared for gospel ministry. Study the Bible. Read good books. Are you reading a good spiritual book? Are you reading something that will encourage you in the Christian life? Anything. We don't read books, do we? I read books, and when I read books, they're so encouraging and informative to my soul. I find I am different if I read. God works in the reading, uh, especially a bit of good, solid Christian literature that helps me understand biblical truth, and I get a clearer understanding of theology, of the character of God, of what Scripture and the arguments of Scripture make. Read things about God. Read good books. Read, begin with the Bible. It's the best book. But go further and read good books from learned men whose ways of life we, we should emulate. Many of us listen to books online. Are we listening to something that edifies us eternally or, or that will equip us with a knowledge of Jesus Christ? Study the Bible. Read good books. Attend good conferences. The Bolton Conference is coming up in about two or three weeks out in, uh, out, out in Upton, Ma- not Upton, Mass., I'm sorry, but out uh, in the eastern portion of the state, southeastern. We should increase in the knowledge of God. How do we do that? We do it because we ask the Lord, increase our knowledge of Jesus Christ. Are we asking the Lord consistently to do that? Let me know Jesus. Let me know him more. Let me grow in his grace. Increase the knowledge of God in me. Give me an understanding of the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe you're quite confused about Jesus and what he means and what he did. Uh, Fall on your knees and ask the Lord. Ask the Lord daily. Lord, teach me about Jesus. He will. I assure you he will. Show me Jesus. May this be our cry and prayer as we conclude. Give me a greater knowledge of my Savior. Let me know the fellowship of his sufferings. Let me know him as the friend of my soul. Let me walk in fellowship daily with him. Let me know him as as my humbled Savior. Let me know him dying and risen again. Let me know his glory and the beauty and, and to anticipate the day when I will see him face to face. He who died for me. Let me know him. Lastly, there's only one way to respond to all of this as God grants us an increase in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is to join Peter in the hymn in that last sentence. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. What do we do as we increase in the knowledge of God and of Christ as Lord, our Lord? We simply lift our hands and praise him. To him, to, to him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. We glorify the Lord Jesus. What is your response to in knowing the, the sacrifice of Christ, in increasing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ? 
Let it be a hymn of praise and thanksgiving to God. O Lord Jesus, to you be the glory forever and ever. O Lord Jesus, may you be glorified in this poor sinner's lisping, stammering praise. O Christ, be glorified in me. Glorify yourself in me. Unworthy vessel that I am. Glorify yourself in me. May God help us to increase and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ and to praise him for all eternity and to glorify our God and our Savior. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, we thank you for your word this morning to us, and we ask that you would help us. We would come before you and ask that you would help us to guard carefully over our souls so that we would not be carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from our own steadfastness and fall into a position of instability. We desire that we would not go through a season of ab- abstaining from the word or of absent or being absent from you. It grieves our soul to even think of such a thing. Forgive us of our many sins. Cleanse us of our iniquity. Forgive us according to your grace and help us to come to an increasing understanding of that grace and how vitally important it is to our soul. Give us an increase in the knowledge of Jesus. Help us to know him. Help us, therefore, to prepare for the day of the Lord, the day when all things will cease to be. The heavens will melt and we will hear a shout and the voice of an archangel. Oh Lord, the cataclysms in in Israel and in Afghanistan, the rumors of wars, death, in a moment, in the blink of an eye, the earthquakes that shocked and shook mountains, killed people, buried individuals under houses and walls and roofs, Lord, these are but small indications of the judgment yet to come. Do not let us ignore such things, but help us to take warning and to prepare. To seek the Lord while he may be found. To believe and trust. To grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. To prepare for the day when we will send And we will be face to face with our God and Savior. Encourage us with these words. Grant us these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together and sing the last hymn. Number 284, you servants of God, your master proclaim.